Before it can hire contractors to build or renovate federal buildings, the General Services Administration's Public Building Service has to engage architects. Over the years, some of the world's top architects have designed federal buildings. Now GSA wants to ensure diversity in its roster of architects. It's inked a Memorandum of Understanding with the National Organization of Minority Architects. And here with more, the Commissioner of the Public Building Service, Nina Albert. Ms. Albert, good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Tom. I always appreciate talking to you, as well as your listeners. And tell us more about the process of buying and contracting for architecture. It's totally different than from construction and renovation because there is the, I guess, the aesthetic element here that people sometimes take for granted. Well, as you know, or um, your listeners may know, the GSA is one of the significant landholding agencies within the federal government. We manage 1,300 federal buildings, which we own. 30% of those buildings are historic facilities, which is quite remarkable. And we continue to build or renovate. And all of that activity requires designers, engineers. And then, as you said, the general contractors who actually build come a little bit later in the process. So we'll go out. Architects are involved in the development process very, very early on. They'll work with us on feasibility studies, really trying to scope the size of the building. How does it fit into a site? And then, of course, as we pull the trigger and know that we're going to move forward with the project, then they will be doing the design. And they're responsible for the exterior of the building. They're responsible for the interior of the building. And equally important in our world is making sure that our federal buildings, as they interface and interact with space and community around us, really ties into the essence of the community. So they play an incredibly important role in development. And how does the selection work? Because, again, it's the appearance of the building and the interior environment that people are going to live with for the next 50 years. So it's not something like making sure the concrete is to spec. That's true. I think that the process for hiring architects is actually not so different from the process of hiring any other contractor. The difference is, you know, what particular qualities are you looking for? So we'll put out an RFP, firms will bid, we're looking for qualifications. Have they done projects that are similar to the one that we're proposing? Who's their team? You know, because that's really who you're working with for probably a number of years. Are they qualified or do they have the time? And then obviously, what's their price? So all of those things we evaluate and look at and ultimately make a decision on. And tell us then about this agreement, this memorandum of understanding with the minority architects. I guess that puts GSA as a member of the National Association of Minority Architects. Well, I just want to say I am so pleased that you even thought to highlight this as one of the stories that you're doing because diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility is one of the Biden-Harris administration's priorities. And we believe that the GSA can play a huge role in advancing some of those goals. So the commercial real estate field and industry is not particularly representative and diverse. And so across all different groups of people and underrepresented populations in the workforce, we're trying to reach out to. The National Organization of Minority Architects is the largest organization of underrepresented people who are professional architects. They have 2,500 members, and so they're a great connection point for us. The MOU is really a three-part MOU. One is about education and sharing, you know, being a part of 
their programs participating so that we can learn and be better employers. Another piece of it is an internship pathway and how can GSA benefit from the relationship and ourselves hire young architects. And then the third is really education about federal government contracting and how can architecture firms who are owned by people of color understand the selection process and get into the pipeline. So it's a three-part MOU. And we just launched it in February of this year. We're speaking with Nina Albert. She's commissioner of the Public Building Service at the General Services Administration. And you touched on one thing I think is really important. Maybe you can elaborate on the fact that it's sometimes not so easy for the uninitiated to do business with the federal government. In fact, it can seem like the most difficult thing in the whole process, let alone designing the building. So are there provisions to help ease that? without removing any of the competitive qualities that you need in the actual architect? We are looking, I mean, GSA is, as you know, um, plays a major role in government procurement. And so we are looking across the board at how to streamline, simplify, and make much more accessible federal contracting opportunities. The smaller a business is, the more complicated it becomes for them to compete in large part because of the time that it might take or the expertise that you must have to have developed to compete effectively. And so we're looking writ large and holistically at how to make the experience and the procurement process easier to access. We're also making significant efforts to reach out to the small business community. And so our Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization has a program, again, for doing that proactive outreach, get folks into the pipeline early, educate them on what our process is, so that ultimately when they do compete, they can be more successful. So this is, again, part of our contribution. And frankly, we believe it's our mandate to make sure that federal government contracts are more readily and easily available. And how does internships fit into this whole picture? Because that's a different relationship with the person. We have a pretty amazing internship program. It's called GSA's Pathway Program. It's an entree point for students from high school to graduate level to have paid internships at GSA. That's pretty extraordinary. So there's three separate programs within it. The first one is Recent Graduates Program. Another one is the Presidential Management Fellows Program. And then third is the Internship Program, which is the largest of the three. So folks can go on to GSA's website, look for the internship program or any of the other ones and apply. And the great part about it is that it is paid, which so many students need right now. And it also equals the playing field for folks who may come from underrepresented communities and where that paid internship really becomes even more significant. But that applies to everybody, as we know. Sure. And just getting back to the acquisition end of this, give us a sense of how much architecture GSA buys, because people tend to think of architects in terms of here's a new building, but brand new greenfield buildings are relatively rare compared to all of the other work that goes on. So where does architecture fit in besides brand new buildings? Architecture fits into even our repair and alteration schedules. That's what's great about really getting in and having a contract with us is that if you're a smaller firm, we do uh, what we call tenant outfits. So, you know, moving office buildings within an existing building that you need an architect for. If you're going to change where the walls are, if you're going to change, you know, how many people are in a space that requires an architect to go 
do calculations, figure out if there's more air that needs to circulate through the space, et cetera, et cetera. So we have projects, large and small, all of which require architects. GSA has a significant uh, new construction as well as repair and alteration program annually. Uh, I believe that we expend anywhere from $2 billion to $4 billion a year. This is across the country. So there are opportunities really across the country. And then with the bipartisan infrastructure law, we have $3.4 billion to invest in modernize land ports of entry on both our northern and southern borders. We will need architects for all of that work. So there are ample opportunity and we really looking forward to working even more with our architecture community. Nina Albert is Commissioner of the Public Building Service at the General Services Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to the memorandum at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing We were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks Um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 